There's a verse in the book of Proverbs, it comes from uh, Proverbs 16.4, that says that the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. When I first read that verse, I thought, the wicked for the day of evil, and I was thinking along the lines of judgment. Frankly, I was being critical. I was thinking bad thoughts about bad people. You've probably done that before yourself. And I was thinking that it was saying that God reserves or has created or given the purpose up for wicked people so that they can suffer in the day of evil, so they can pay for what they have done. Then as I was preparing this message, I started to look at it again, and it says the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And I thought about how in the day of evil, it could be the day of evil much because the wicked are doing what the wicked do. Not because they're getting justice, but because they are doing what the wicked do. And that led me to think about how when we look at the scriptures and we look at different stories in the Bible, sometimes it's wise, if God has indeed created everything for a purpose, it is wise for us to ask the question, what is the purpose that God created this for? Okay, Why did God allow this event? Or why did God, what is, what is this story really mean? Or what is it really saying? What is the purpose of it in the overall narrative of his story, which is the history of the world. So today, as we look at this text, I'd like you to keep in mind these questions, and I hope I'll bring them to a head when we get to the conclusion. Uh, Keep in mind these questions. What is the purpose of what is actually going on in the story? And then what is the purpose of the story? What is the purpose of God including the story? All these things are important because this is a story that hundreds of millions of people know. Maybe it's a story that you know, maybe it isn't. It doesn't, it's not, not everybody necessarily knows it. But it's a story that hundreds of millions of people know, but they don't necessarily understand God's purpose or Matthew's purpose for including it in his word where he does. Okay, So grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe a little amen, even an exhale if all you can get is a grunt and go for that as we go to Matthew chapter 2. Yeah. This is God's word. That marks the moment in time at which we set aside our own ideas and we say, okay, Lord, Word of God, speak. Whatever you would say to me today, whatever you would do to me today, whatever you would do in me today, I am ready. Matthew 2, 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, and then there's a comma and it begins verse 2. So in the story, and this is what people know, there are these magis or wise men. There is this, the, the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, right? So they, these are probably wealthy individuals. But literally, magi didn't mean king. It meant um, wise man or a mystic of sorts, a person who understood better the way creation works. Let's look at it. Let's say it that way. And probably these uh, people were into... Um, watching the stars, even worshiping in the stars, being led by the stars, that kind of thing. And that's where we get the idea that they saw a star, and you'll see that coming in the story. They come to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, looking for the king whose star they saw in the sky. And at this point, I just want you to realize that they go to the capital, even though they have been led to Judea by the star, they go to the capital... And ought not kings to be found in capitals, in throne rooms, on thrones, or to be on thrones? 
since this was most certainly a baby. Verse 2 says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now notice that it does not say that they went to the king. That's a mistake that people often make. It does not say that they went to the king and asked where is he who has been born. I'm not sure that they would necessarily do that uh, because of the potential problems that might arise. If they were wise and understood the, the ways that things work, um, that might not have been their intention to go to the king and ask, where is the new king? But anyway, they, they're saying in the city of Jerusalem, where is the king? Because that's the capital of God's people. That's the place in which God's people focus their power, their gathering, their worship, etc. And they've gone there to ask, where is the one who has been born the king? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now notice that the word worship here means to declare the worth, very generically speaking, or to shine a light on something. And in general, worship is not for kings. Now it's not that respect is not for kings, honor, even a word which you might be familiar with called homage, giving them the authority that they deserve. But they are saying they came to worship him. This is no ordinary king that they are looking for. They don't know the Jewish word. They don't know what the Bible says. But this is no ordinary king that they are looking for. And they know that. And they have come to worship this king. In this moment in time, they intend to show devotion to this king. But I want you to see that that moment in time, that doesn't make them a Christian. It doesn't make them a Jew. It doesn't make them messianic anything, right? They've come to worship this king that they recognize will be someone really special. After all, he got his very own star in the sky. That makes him pretty important, they figure. But this act of devotion on their part, which is so often put up on a pedestal, like we as Christians, what's it say? Wise men still seek him, right? Bring your gifts, we talk about how they are the, the model or example of devotion, but understand they are, this is just devotion in a moment in time. This is not about Christianity. This is not about following God. This is not about recognizing God. It's nothing about any of that. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And the word troubled there, we talked a little bit about this last week. The word troubled there means stirred inside. We talked a little bit about this in our inspirational moment, to be troubled. Truth is, Jesus says, be, don't be troubled. Fear not. My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Jesus was saying, we don't have reason to be troubled because we are on a firm foundation. And if all the earth should shake, the kingdom of God should still be solid. When Herod the king heard this, however, when he heard that there was born this king of the Jews, he was troubled. Now, Herod had probably been troubled before. Herod killed his favorite wife and two of his sons because he thought there was a plot to take his kingship. Um, maybe there was, maybe there wasn't. Evidences are not clear. But he killed them, his family members, his favorite wife, by his own profession, and two of his sons, to make sure that he could protect his kinghood. And so we already know that he's capable, when he's troubled, of great wickedness. He was stirred up. That's what it means. So what happens if you look at the throne and find out that the real king is not on the throne? Well, the king that's on the throne, if he finds out, he's troubled because something's about to change. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them 
where the Messiah was to be born. There's a couple things I want you to see in this verse that, I, that made me just kind of blew my mind, if you will. First of all, he gathers together all the chief priests and scribes, and this is a relatively common act of the king when he has a question, right? We see it in Daniel. We see it uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Israel's king, bring in the scribes, bring in the prophets. Let's hear what they have to say about this, this mystery, this thing that we can't figure out, right? But I want you to see one really important phrase. It says, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. It does not say he brought in his wise men. It does not say he brought in his chief priests and scribes. He was not accustomed to consulting the chief priests and scribes about important matters. He is gathering from throughout Jerusalem where you would expect them to be because, again, this is the capital of God's people on earth, right? He gathers throughout Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes, to ask them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, at what point did this transfer to be about the Messiah? Well, Matthew is saying clearly that if there was a star in the sky and a baby has been born and in a miraculous way, this is in reference to the prophecies of the Messiah. So we see the purpose of Matthew's story here is to say that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies. That theologically speaking, Jesus was indeed God in the flesh, that he was the anointed one, the Christ, that he has authority that goes beyond. Which breaks down at what point? Herod does not want the Messiah to rise to power, which is a problem because that has nothing to do with his kingship. According to what the scripture says, if Herod understood the scripture, he doesn't have to stop being king in order for Jesus to be king. This is not about somebody new taking the throne in Jerusalem. For Herod, it's about the fact that God is not on the throne of his life. God is not in charge of him. He's going to do what he wants to do. And if the Messiah sets a standard of godliness or a standard of holiness, he understands that his choices will not line up. He wants to kill the Messiah for the same reason that the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, essentially will eventually kill him. Because the standard that he sets is a standard different than what they are living by. He asks them where the Messiah will be born because he recognizes if a star rose in the sky, if there is this miraculous birth, then clearly this must be pointing to the Messiah who will be the king of the Jews eternally. And not just the Jews, but all people. And they knew that from the scripture. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. So they answer him that way, and they quote a prophecy, and it's in verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this quote of the Old Testament was a long-expected messianic prophecy. Everybody accepted that this prophecy was about the Messiah, that the one whom God would send, the anointed one, God's king to be on the throne forever was being prophesied about in this verse. Now, a couple of interesting things about Bethlehem. Guess who else was born in Bethlehem? Bible scholars in the room? Nope. David. King David. This is King David's birthplace, right? And And he was called a man after God's own heart, and it was he who received the promise that eventually the Messiah would come. Now, Many people did, but he received the promise that the Messiah would be a king that would be a descendant of David to sit on the throne of Israel forever. 
So logically speaking, I mean, it's great symmetry on God's behalf to say the baby would be born in the same city that David was born in and reared in. And then we have the prophecy. But this prophecy is written long after the time of David. So it's obviously a prophecy about another king, another leader, another ruler, right? And a ruler who it said, will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. A couple things you need to see in here. The first thing is he determines them the exact, exact time the star appeared. Well, here's our first clue. This is not Christmas night. This is not the day that Jesus was born. He's asking, when did the star show up in the sky? When did you first detect the star in the sky to begin this long journey, which was hundreds of miles from where they came from to where they're ultimately going? He asks, where, when did the star first appear in the sky? Secondly, I want you to notice that he calls them in secretly. After he calls in all of the prophets and the high priests and so on, he calls them in secretly. Now remember, these are wise men. They understand the way things work. So the moment he calls them in secretly, with no divine revelation whatsoever, what do they realize? Well, I'm here to tell you that anytime anyone does anything secretly, their motives are not good. We're called to live in the light. If there is anything at all that you do, that you would be afraid to tell other people that you do it, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And you know in your heart of hearts that you probably shouldn't be doing it. And you need to stop. You need something else. Replace it with something else. Herod calls them in secretly, and from the moment that he calls them in secretly, they know that his motives are impure. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. And of course, they're, they're probably stone-faced because they don't want to be executed in the, in the throne room of a foreign king in this clandestine meeting. But they know already. And you can tell by the way people do things whether their motives are pure or not. And I'm not saying that you should judge people. This is not about judging people. I am saying that if someone is, comes to you and says, come here, I want to tell you something. By the way, every time someone says, come here, I want to tell you something, I say, no. <laughs> no. Now, as a pastor, I have, to, I have confidentiality. So if I meet with them privately in my office, they can tell me anything they want, and I'm not going to tell anybody. It's confidential, right? I will stop them from slander or gossip or things like that. But other than that, they can tell me anything they want. It's confidential. They don't need to say, come here, let me tell you something. Would you, if someone told you something privately, would you just go and tell people? Isn't that gossip or slander? Would you just go tell people what they told you? No. So why does somebody just say, come here, let me tell you something privately? The moment they do that, you've got to realize their motives are probably impure. And if they start to say, he said or she said, then it's gossip or slander. If they start to say, they did, I saw, you really need to know this. I wouldn't tell you, but I want to make sure you weren't caught off guard by this. Those are all things that tell you that their, their means are wrong, and their intentions are clandestine. So he says, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, notice that back in verse 7, when he asked about the star, we don't get the when the star appeared here. But we do know that it was a long journey. He doesn't, they don't, there's no verse 7 and a half that says, well, it was about two years ago or about a year ago. The story doesn't tell. Because the purpose of the story is to demonstrate 
theologically that Jesus is the Messiah, that everybody knew it, even those who didn't you know, seem to get it or didn't handle it correctly knew they expected him to be the Messiah. Okay, that's the purpose of the story. So it doesn't, we don't need to say exactly when the star appeared. That's not necessary for that purpose. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now this is awesome. Because they leave there, directed by the king and the wise men to, of Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. But when they get out, as soon as they get outside Jerusalem, there's the star to lead them to exactly where they need to go, which is probably good because the directions that they got may not be very good. I read one scholar on this who believes that by this time, Jesus was already living in Nazareth. And so the star doesn't even lead them to Bethlehem. I'm not sure that's correct because I'm not sure why they would be so concerned as to take flight about that Herod was going to try to kill him because uh, Nazareth is quite a ways away from Jerusalem. They'd have been pretty safe. They'd have had plenty of time before having to set off on their trip. But we don't really know that. The point is, it doesn't say where the baby was, but this much we can know for sure. He wasn't laying in a manger because time has passed. And in case you were doubting, it says in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were very happy to be led not by men, but by God or by astronomical experience. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. There it is. He's in the house. There's the child with Mary and his mother. And they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. And remember, worship is not for kings. It's for, it's for beyond kings. Then opening their treasures, they present to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay? And now we'll stop for one second. Based on this, how many wise men are in the room worshiping Jesus? Anybody want to take a guess? Okay, we got a guess of three. What do you think? Matt says two. Do we know that Matt is wrong or do we know that Stacy is wrong? Either one? They could both be right because either one could be right. Can't both be right at the same time, obviously, but they could both be correct in their guess because it doesn't say, does it? So the whole idea, we three kings of Orient are, it's not biblical. Doesn't come from the Bible anywhere. You won't find it anywhere in the New Testament. However, there are three gifts, and it's assumed. I want to say to you that, by the way, it's probably not three. That's probably not the correct. Well, you know why? Because if it is three, then the person who brought the frankincense instead of the gold, or the person who brought the myrrh instead of the frankincense, these gifts are not equal in value. And so you travel a couple hundred miles, and the guy who came with you brings a better gift than you do? That's a problem. Okay, so there, there's meaning behind the gifts. We could do a lot with that if we wanted to. Frankincense, by the way, is the least valuable of these three extremely valuable gifts. They're all very valuable. But frankincense can be found, it come, it's the sap that comes from the splitting of the bark of multiple different kinds of trees in that region. It's a lot of effort and a lot of work to collect it, and it's very useful for a lot of things. But it comes from a lot. Myrrh, on the other hand, comes from just one kind of tree, much more rare, much more difficult to come by, and it is used for embalming the dead. It's his primary use. And some would say that's symbolic of his destiny, where he's going. And then gold, of course, we know what gold is. It's very expensive stuff. You can't just, I mean, could have been just a little bit of gold, I guess, and quite a bit of frankincense and myrrh. You say, well, he brought gold, but look, I brought frankincense, right? Probably 
how many ever wise men they were, they presented all their gifts together at the same time. They didn't differentiate and say, that guy brought myrrh, and that guy brought frankincense, and that guy brought gold. They presented all together at the same time, which means it may well not have been three. 51% likely. But we don't know, do we? Why? Because the purpose of the story is not to give us this historical account of the exact details so we can sing a song that says, we three kings of Orient are, which has got a beautiful ring to it or whatever. That's not the purpose of the story. The purpose of the story is to show that they fell on their knees before him and worshipped him because they, who were not Christians, who were not Jews even, they didn't have the Bible, they didn't have the prophecies, they came from a land where the word of God, such as this people memorized it every single day, didn't exist. Yet they recognized him as someone to be worshipped. And verse 12, our last verse from this text says, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And we see that desiring the best interest of a new king will lead you to rebellion against all other kings. Herod could put them to death. The baby, not so much. I mean, Joseph hit him with a, wood, hit him with a mallet or something, maybe. Uh, the shepherds could have got really angry with him, and they were pretty boisterous guys. They could be pretty violent at times, but they probably weren't actually around. They were in the fields doing their jobs, things like that. So they weren't in any danger from Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, whatever, but they were in danger from Herod. And yet they crossed him because it's the right thing to do. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's what it says. The purpose in the story of the wise men is clearly theological. These events, the events that are taking place here, are meant to connect to the prophecies of the Old Testament. Matthew, who is essentially writing to the Jewish people in his day, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, after the beginnings of the church, is convincing Jews, saying, basically, look, the Jews knew then. Here it is. It's lined up with prophecy. They knew then. Not only did the Jews know, and this is Jews know, but this is a better argument, a bigger argument that we'll see in a minute, that people who weren't even Jews could figure this out. You need to pay attention. That's what his argument was. That's what the purpose of this story is. The purpose of the wise men themselves, on the other hand, in this context, as we read these historical events, is to remind us of a few things. And the first one is this. The world, that is to say, the kingdom that is not God's kingdom, the world realizes there are places for kings to be found. You want to find a king? Not so many of them left in the world today, at least literal kings. But you know you could find one. You would have a hard time getting an audience, but you know where to look. A castle, a smaller country, England, they don't have a king, they have a queen. That kind of thing. You want to find the royalty? You know where to look. The world realizes there are places for kings to be found. They are found on thrones. And so the wise men wound up standing in front of Herod. They're found in capitals. So they went to the capital. The star led them to Judea and they went to the capital. As the object of recognition or homage, giving them due place, their authority. When they met the King Jesus, they got down on their knees. They brought gifts. They risked an untimely demise, rebelling against Herod. They did all this for a king who was not their king. Remember, when they came asking, what did they say? Where is this one who was born the king of the Jews? Not, we are Jews too, we want to see our king. This was not their king. 
They were not there to pay homage or recognition or worship, in the case of Jesus, to Herod or anyone else. They were there to recognize this incredible thing that God was doing. As a worldly person, no Holy Spirit. Now, they got warned of God in a dream eventually, but the only thing they had, we know of they had to bring them to this point was a star that appeared in the sky, and they followed it. That's it. When amazing things happen, the world can figure out that something is going on. They're not stupid. People are not stupid. The average person is not stupid. The IQ in America is well over 100 on average, and which means they can figure out a lot of things. That means at 18 years old, they can figure out about what an 18-year-old should know. I know you know a lot of people, and you go, like, I don't know about that person. Sometimes I feel like I'm one of those people that's kind of stupid. I don't know why I did that. But the point is, we're all pretty smart, and we can figure out if something amazing is happening, that there is an appropriate response. The world realizes, for example, that there are places for kings to be found. Secondly, this, the, the story of the wise men helps us and reminds us that the world recognizes that honoring one king, one king means dismissing any king that is in opposition. So Herod is now, because of his secret meeting and asking and, and they don't trust his motivations, he is presenting himself as a king in opposition to this king baby that has been born. And they choose the one whose star arose in the sky, the one that they've journeyed so far to see, the one who they now see and give their gifts to, who's a baby, probably a toddler, but still very young, they choose him over Herod. You remember Rahab the prostitute who winds up in the lineage of Jesus, one of the few women that do? When the, when the spies come, she entertains them in private. She talks to them in secret. She hides them from the local king. She eventually even lies to the local king. And what is the result? She and her whole household are spared from destruction. As a prostitute who just knew enough to choose the right king. She chose the right king, which was God, because that's the king of the Israelites. She didn't necessarily understand that, but she chose the Israelites over her own king. And she saved not only herself, but her whole house, all of those that would listen to her anyway. The world recognizes that honoring one king means dismissing a king that's in opposition. Now today, unfortunately, in 2019, we've had this whole battle over what the truth is. And so is truth even truth? And, you know, and so on. But you get right down to it when you say to somebody, well, is there truth? And they say, well, no, that's your truth, my truth, whatever. If you take their stuff, they say, you can't do that. And I say, well, why? My truth says it's my stuff. Your truth says it's your stuff. I'm taking it. And they say, well, no, that's not allowed. It's against the law. It's wrong. It's morally incorrect. See, they have absolutes. They just don't want to admit they have absolutes. So the world has absolutes. And recognizing one king over another means dismissing the one that you're not recognizing. Possible opposition is the same way. Jesus doesn't need defending. God does not need defending. Now, Paul says, be prepared to give a reason for why you believe what you believe, right? Um, because we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But, but Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, things like that. But God does not need defending. If all of us, all the Christians on all the earth, and by the way, according to what Revelation says, this will eventually happen. All the Christians on all the earth, their witness will all be gone. And then you know what God will do? What does Revelation say he'll do? 
We studied it. It says he will raise up for himself, and I may mess the number up, but I believe it's 20,000 evangelists who will then reach out to the rest of mankind. After there's no one left that's saved because all the Christians are not in the mix, according to Revelation, either because they're dead or because they're taken to heaven and the results are the same, right? Depending on which way you believe the events to unfold. Either way, when there are no Christians to witness anymore, God will raise up for himself, 20,000 I believe is the number, evangelists out of the Jewish people who have recognized who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, he is the one, they're supposed to be following, God wants to save people and so on, and they will witness to all the others, and they will endure great persecution. God does not need you to defend him, he does not need me to defend him. However, even the world recognizes that if you choose one king, if he is your king, then any king in opposition must be dismissed or opposed. This is why Jesus says, a man cannot have two masters. Because you will love the one and hate the other, or love the other and hate the one. There's always going to be a hierarchy of rulership in your life. And who is it going to be? Who is going to be in charge of your life? Are you going to choose an earthly king? Are you going to choose an evil spirit? Are you going to choose your own personal desires? There's always going to be a hierarchy of kingship. And even the world recognizes that if you choose God, for example, which is the one I think you should choose, but if you choose God, that you have to dismiss or minimize the impact of all other kings. I was sitting with a man who was struggling with whether or not to become a follower of Christ. He was debating with himself whether or not Jesus was indeed the way. And I said to him, I said, well, it says Jesus is the way and the truth of life. No one comes unto the Father by me. And he says, yeah, but isn't that what he would say? I mean, if he wanted people to believe that he was the way to God, then isn't that what he would say? So how does that really say anything? He says, you know what I struggle with the most? The thing that bothers me the most? Because I see all these people who profess to be Christians... They're supposed followers of the Lord, but they seem to be holding hands with God, but playing footsie with the world. So they're really into whatever. Sex, drugs, alcohol, rock and roll. Party on Friday night, barely get up for church on Sunday morning. Or they're into money, spending money and feeling prosperous or pursuing money or working all the time. If Jesus is really their king, he said, if God is really in charge, then shouldn't all of these other things be essentially dismissed or even opposed? And I'm like, yes. He's like, well, then why don't they? And I said, well, so, well, let me give you two things. One, for one account, there's a lot of folks who claim to be Christians who aren't. It's not my place to say who is and who isn't, but there's a lot of folks who claim to be Christians who aren't. They're playing footsie with the world because the truth is they're actually wanting to hold hands with the world. They're not wanting to hold hands with Jesus. Secondly, even while we live for Jesus, even while Jesus has become our, our King and our Lord and our Savior, even while that is true, we're still in the flesh. Our body still wants what it wants. And at times, people make mistakes, do things they shouldn't do, and so on. And the enemy is highlighting those times to you because the truth is, he's your king, and you're listening to what he has to say while he accuses these other people. So you're looking at Christians and saying, they're not living like I think they should live, 
when in reality you should be asking yourself about who your king is. The world recognizes that honoring one king means dismissing another or even opposing, certainly rebelling, against any other. And a meeting in secrecy indicates a dark motive. People can be known by their behaviors, not truly known. You can't judge their salvation. You can't say, well, I know why they did that exactly, because you don't know exactly. Even 1 Corinthians 13 says, we know in part. But the truth is, the way you do something does say something about to whom you belong. So in other words, if you are following a certain king, then your actions, when examined, should look loyal to that king, not loyal to yourself. Or loyal to a system. Or loyal to a phrase. Or loyal to a tradition. Or loyal to a teaching. Right? It should be loyal to Jesus. Christianity is not a religion. You're not loyal to a set of rules. Those of you who are here today, who are loyal to the Bible, better check yourself and make sure you are first loyal to the King Jesus. Because there is no way to get to heaven through this book. There is only the way to get to heaven through the one this book teaches us about, who is Jesus. And so the danger is that those who call themselves Christians and say that King Jesus will take them home one day, that their dark motives become obvious first to Jesus, because he already knows, never to them, because they are protecting themselves from feeling their failings and realizing that they are not indeed following Jesus. And if they are not following Jesus, then we know they do have a king. There's an old saying that says, actions speak louder than words. And Jesus said it this way. He says, he who loves me will follow my commands. Also, when the world recognizes that honoring one king means dismissing another who is in opposition or even rebelling, Notice that when a king is troubled, he is not the king. If you are following someone or something in your life, and it shakes or wobbles when you walk on it, when you rest on it, when you find your peace in it, that is not Jesus. If you are following your best understanding of God, your best understanding of Jesus, but when something hits you, you are shaken to your very core, then you need to refine your best understanding of Jesus to be more like the actual Jesus. Because the actual Jesus was called to die on a cross, wept until his pores bled in anguish over what he was called to do, and yet walked calmly into the house of the high priest, was persecuted all night long, fell under the weight of his cross, and with help went to the hill, and then prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Roman soldier that watched at the base of the cross looked up and saw Jesus and said, this man, the way he dies compared to everyone else, this man was a son of God. If you are troubled to your core, if the king that is your king is troubled at what you face, 
there's a good possibility that he is not King Jesus because ain't nothing ever happened or ever will that Jesus can't handle. Even the world recognizes that honoring one king means dismissing another. The third thing in here, purpose, if you will, of the wise men is to show us that devotion happens by moments, by episodes, and by lifetimes. This is a moment. It even goes on to be an episode, right? Because a moment would be they, they, they're suddenly there and they fall on their knees and they give their gifts. That's a moment. But this is at least an episode. They left home, they packed, they walked a really long way or rode their animals and more likely walked. <coughs> they brought expensive gifts. They got down on their knees. They betrayed Herod. This is at least an episode. And then they go home. So it is probably not a lifetime. We don't know for sure. But their purpose in the story is also to show us that devotion happens by moments, by episodes, and by lifetimes. Getting it right does not mean you are right. In other words, if you're in a conflict with someone, let's make this very simple. If you're in a conflict with somebody, and they're wrong, and you're right. In that moment, they're wrong, and you're right. But their motives might be right. They might even be standing up for something that's wrong, knowing it's wrong, because standing up for what is wrong is actually right. You say, that can't happen, right? I'll give you an example. But there was a time in which a man came to me to complain about my wife. I defended her immediately. Everything that he was complaining about, she had actually done. I defended her. Was I wrong or was I right? Right? And she's done the same for me. And if you're married in the room, you've probably done the same thing for your spouse. Because that's your job. So I'm still doing my job. Now afterwards, I talked to them, and she's like, oh man, you know, I did do that. And she went and she made it right. She took care of it. Because that's what Christians do. Right? She's talked to me about when I was wrong, and then I went and made it right. Because that's what Christians do. But you don't in the moment when somebody's talking, you don't go, oh yeah, my spouse is a jerk. I know that already. You're not telling me nothing. Right? So, at the moment, you can be wrong, but doing it for the right reason. That's just the moment. It's just a moment. And then it's gone. Like a stretch out to be an episode. You can go longer if you want. And it can become a whole lifetime. Getting it right in the moment does not mean you are right. Has anyone here ever told the truth? We do that, right? If you're saved and you're here, did you ever tell the truth before you got saved? Ever? I mean, sure, right? Sometimes. Lots of times, probably. Might even have prized it. It might have been a really big deal in your household to always tell the truth. And so you might have told the truth most of the time. But did you ever lie? Sure. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So we all have that sin. But we also have rightness. We can do what's right. But it's a moment or episodic. The lifetime, if you do what's right and tell the truth, that doesn't, that's not your ticket to heaven. Not even if you're doing what's right in that moment 
and, and suddenly Jesus comes, and there you are telling the truth. I mean, you're, there you are diving on a grenade to save your unit in the military, self-sacrifice. I'm going to dive on this grenade, I'm going to save them. And Jesus comes at that exact moment. Jesus is not going to take you to heaven because you dove on the grenade. It doesn't work that way. That's just a moment. It's a moment of getting it right. I get that. God says our righteousness is as filthy rags. Everything you ever get right, it's momentary or episodic. The righteousness that we need to go to heaven is found in Jesus Christ. For him who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God through him. Because devotion is momentary. I'm down on my knees, I offer my gifts. It's episodic. I've been doing this for a while. I was talking with a man on the phone yesterday who was sharing with me that he's been clean from his addiction for 60 days. And he said, this is the longest I've ever been clean. And that kind of rung a bell with me. And I thought, oh, that's, I've heard that before. <laughs> Last time it was 120 days was the longest I've ever been clean. And one time there was a year. It was a year. That was the longest I've ever been clean. But now it's 60 days. That's the longest I've ever been clean. So I don't know. So does that be more believable? Because it's been 60 days that I've been clean. So because it's a smaller number, I should believe it more. Or, but the point is, this is what we do. You could be right for a year or 10 years or 50 years. You could be right. It would be amazing. But you could be right for 50 years. And that would not be enough. Devotion it's momentary, and it's episodic, and it's for a lifetime. And these three magi are in this story to remind us that that's true. Just because they came from afar, just because they got down on their knees, just because they gave their gifts, just because they honored the Messiah, does not mean they are saved. Also, getting it wrong doesn't mean you are wrong, as I shared. Being right is about choosing the right king. In the moment, yes. In an episode, yes. And where it hurts is it's for a lifetime. Come to the conclusion, but it's lengthy, so don't think we're almost done. Don't, don't run ahead of me. Okay. People sometimes make the mistake of playing patsy to false kings trying to hold hands with King Jesus while playing footsie with, the, with King anybody or anything. They try to, sometimes they try to prove their devotion to themselves or to others by a moment's devotion to the right king. Like, oh, I heard you need money for this. Here you go. Here's all the money. Or, guy stand on the corner. I, I'm homeless and I need food. And they stop and they give him a $100 bill. And now they're righteous because they give him a $100 bill. I give people who are less fortunate food three to five days a week, which does not make me right or righteous. It's just the right thing to do. But I drive by people who are standing on the road who have the homeless line, and I don't stop and give them money, which does not make me wrong. Right? People get this idea that you can measure someone's value or how devoted they are to the king by what you see them do in a moment, and it just doesn't work this way. This is the single most difficult aspect of Christianity. In fact, it is the one that I believe out of which persecution will arise. The church as we know it will 
cease to exist, even if it's because Jesus takes them all home or whatever, how it's going to happen in the world, it will not exist as we know it. Because this is the most difficult part of Christianity, and that is there is no Christianity that is not for life. It's not until you die. It's not every moment, everything you do, when you're putting on your clothes, when you're eating your meals, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, is for life. It is for every moment of every day. If you take a break, you were never a Christian. I didn't say it. You look at me and go, no, that's not fair. Right? That's harsh. That's a strong statement you make. Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Not my words, Jesus' words. No one, after putting his hand to the plow, that means getting busy doing what the kingdom is doing, doing what God would have you do. After you say, I'll follow Jesus, and you begin. No one, after practicing a moment's devotion or an episode of devotion, brings that episode to a close and goes back to play footsie with the world, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow after me. The cross is suffering unto death. It's Jesus. This is the most dangerous, difficult, hard to swallow, crazy, nuts. The cross is this idea. To the Jews, it was like, oh, you, can't, you can't have a Savior. You're dying on a cross. Because if you're dying on a cross, you're cursed. To the Gentiles, that's crazy. You want me to follow for the rest of my life a guy who died on a cross and rose again? That's nuts. Seems like foolishness. It's why some people who actually give it a serious thought don't get saved. Because it's crazy. The fact is you can't do it. It's not possible. It's not even possible to follow Jesus every moment of every day for the rest of your life. That's not possible. But in Christ, all things are possible. And when you make a mistake... When you do what's wrong and the Holy Spirit is there and you repent, now we have an advocate and we are cleansed of all unrighteousness and still on the road. And so our lack of devotion becomes a moment, not a lifetime. Our lack of devotion becomes an episode at worst, not a lifetime. And our lifetime lived for Jesus becomes the seed of an eternity. Oh, now that's Christianity. It's the Christianity that the Magi didn't understand. It's the Christianity that the Jews didn't understand. It cannot be measured. It cannot be assessed. It cannot be proven in this lifetime. It's about encountering the risen Savior and being forever changed. And Jesus said to them, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this message, the same message that I'm explaining to you today, occurs all throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you some examples. We're not going to go read any of them, but I'm going to give you some examples. We see this message. It's an argument made that even the heathen know better. That's the argument, right? Maybe in the back of your mind, some Scripture is popping up, whatever. Here, the Magi, these guys from afar, they come, they know better. The Jews don't get it. The scribes don't rush down there. The king is not actually going down to worship. He declares a purge and kills every baby that was born about the time that Jesus was trying to wipe out the Messiah, for crying out loud. But the heathen, they know better. The magi come from afar to worship Jesus. The book of Jonah. You know, the book of Jonah is uh, what you call a satire. 
Anybody you know, know that genre? It means they're making fun of something. You know who they're making fun of? God's people. The book of Jonah is making fun of God's people. Because let me get this right, okay? So Jonah is prophesying on behalf of God, talking to God's people, and what are they doing? Do they repent? No. Jonah calls, God calls Jonah out to go to Nineveh, not God's people. God's, God says this, here are all these people that don't know their left hand from the white. Right. These are not even wise people. So go to the heathen unwise people and declare my message to them. Jonah immediately realizes what? Well, if I do that, they're going to repent. If they repent, God's not going to destroy them, and I want God to destroy them, so he goes to the opposite end of the earth. He's going to go somewhere the other direction. So, so far, in that just little snippet of that story, who does it say is faithful? Who does it say is being saved? Who does it say is kingdom of God ready? Not Jonah the prophet. He's going to the opposite end of the earth. Not God's people. They ignored God's prophet. The Ninevites, the people who don't know left hand from the right, they're the only ones. Because why? Because Jonah knows that they will repent. See? Even the heathen know. If we are too stupid to follow our God, it isn't because when we were heathen we didn't know. It was because when we got saved, we learned or bought into something that wasn't right or real. Even the heathen know. Then, just in case you're kind of questioning that, the whole book being a satire, whatever, he gets on the ship. You remember he's on the ship and the storm comes? Jonah's below deck sleeping, right? He knows the storm is because of him because he's outrunning God's wrath. Where are all the heathen sailors while Jonah's below deck sleeping? Where? Nope, they're past that. The ship cannot be saved. They already figured it out. Where are they? What are they doing? Praying to God. They're praying to every God they can think of. That's what they're doing. You can read it for yourself. And finally, they cast lots. And when they cast lots, and it's getting close to Jonah, he comes clean. And he says, what's me? <laughs> I've been unfaithful. I'm not running the wrath of God. Just chuck me overboard. Everything will be fine. And what do they say? He says, just chuck me overboard and everything will be fine. And what do they say? Oh, no, we can't do that. Even the heathen know you don't just go throwing people overboard in a storm. Through the whole book. And the Ninevites, do they repent? They do. God's people didn't, but the Ninevites do. The whole book is about how the heathen know. And this story is here for the same purpose. Even the heathen know. Don't be a... Somebody's going to be offended. It's all right, here we go. Don't be a stupid Jew or a stupid Christian. Because even the heathen know. Paul writes to one of the churches in the New Testament. He says, a man has his father's wife. And he says, even the Gentiles know, that don't know Jesus, even they know that's not acceptable. Expel the immoral brother. How do you let that guy come sit in your, in your fellowship and worship with you and praise God and testify and speak and whatever when he's with his father's wife? Even the heathen know that's crazy. Get him out. And that was Paul making an argument from even the heathen know. Jesus himself, let's get right down to it, right? Jesus himself says, the tax collectors and harlots will come and sit down in the kingdom of God before you because even the heathen know. And then Jesus said of Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon he said, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that you have seen amongst you, they would have repented by now in sackcloth and 
and ashes, and he pronounces a curse on Bethsaida and Chorazin, saying, you've seen these miracles and you have not repented. Because even the heathen know. And let's stop and think for a moment why it's so important that even the heathen know. And then we'll be through. In Romans 1, well, I should go there and read this because I do not have it memorized. I might have, but I don't. In Romans 1, in 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his design nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Even the heathen know, and they are without excuse. And if you are here today, and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to understand, you are without excuse. You will not come before God and say, I was busy, I had to work. You will not come before God and say, I had a bill I had to pay. You will not come before God and say, oh, I'm sorry, I was sick. You will not come to say before God and say, oh, I, would, I was going to get around to really considering that, or I was going to really surrender later, or I know I surrendered for a while, but then I kind of let that go, and I thought that would be enough. You're not, you're not going to have any excuses. The request is your devotion for your life. And your answer determines which king you have. And even the heathen know that if you have Jesus as king, you will dismiss all other kings. You will even oppose and rebel against all other kings. And the heathen know where to find a king on the throne of your life, in charge, in control. The heathen know that devotion happens by moments, by episodes, and by lifetimes. And an eternal king deserves an eternal devotion. Romans 2.14 says, I'm skipping a lot there, but it's okay. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, in other words, when they do what they know is right, even though they don't know what the Bible says, They become a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. You see, we were the heathen. Most of us are not Jews. Most of us didn't have the Bible from the moment we were born. Most of us didn't start memorizing Scripture before we could read. Few of you maybe did, I don't know. But the fact is, according to God's purpose for this story, we need to check the throne of our heart and figure out which king we are giving allegiance to. And then we need to dismiss, disobey, and rebel against any other king, anyone or anything that should come and try to take part control of my life. Only Jesus. And then we should have lifelong devotion to that king who will not only be our king until our hearts stop beating, but for eternity. 
And this we learn from some random number of oriental kings who saw a star in the sky traveled a long, long way to find a baby in a house to betray the local king who was so freaky he'd already killed his own wife and his two sons to ensure his kingdom. And they gave him wealthy gifts. And then they went home. And that's where the Christmas story begins to ask us. And it's never stopped. And I'm asking you today on behalf of King Jesus who is on the throne of your heart. Do you have momentary or episodic devotion or lifelong devotion? And if you don't have lifelong devotion, then understand that your momentary or episodic rebellions or putting God off or not following Him, they're symptomatic. And it's because you are devoted to another king. But if you have lifelong devotion, and that's your goal, that's your intent, and every day you're trying, when you fail, you have an advocate who is Jesus Christ. And your momentary or episodic failures, he says, confess them, and they will be forgiven, and you will be cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can't be right for just one moment and leverage in eternity. It's not about a prayer. It's not about responding to the invitation. If Christianity were that easy, then everybody who claims to be a Christian would actually probably be one. But it isn't like that. Jesus asks for lifetime devotion. And you will have to do things that are uncomfortable. God forbid you may even have to die for your faith. He did say, take up your cross. By that he didn't mean just, you know, you're going to have to stomach your impatience or deal with your health issues or struggle with stupid people on the roads. That's not your cross. Your cross is suffering even unto the point of death. And he would ask you, will you do it? He wouldn't ask you to do it. Most of us will not have that problem. But he would ask you, will you do it? And he would give you the ability to do it if if you need to. Some of what we endure is pretty bad. I get that. And he's asking for lifelong devotion, which means devotion in the midst of the worst crisis you've ever faced. Let me pray for you briefly, and then we'll have a song of invitation, and we'll be through. Father in heaven.